up Romans 15 tonight, which I'm pretty excited for uh, because there's a lot of good stuff coming for us in Romans 16. So we're at the tail end of uh, a pretty long time now in Romans. And uh, so there's a whole kit of letter that we always have to drag forward with us as we start up every week. You know, it's like we're not just starting at a short book of the Bible or a short letter. We're dragging uh, 14 chapters of pretty dense theology with us every week uh, when we come forward. Because remember, this was a letter, so they would have read it all in one sitting aloud. And so as we go verse by verse, we get a lot of depth out of it, but uh, we lose that continuity that they would have had. Uh, and so it's good for us to remember not only where we are coming from, but also kind of where we're at now. And that kind of colors in the context for us. Um, the primary uh, theme of this passage uh, really is this phrase that you could find in verse uh, 32. Uh, in verse 32, you will see Paul say, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That phrase, so that by God's will. Uh, one thing is that clear, one thing that is clear in this passage, specifically in verse 14 uh, and on in chapter 15, uh, you see that Paul in his ministry was bound by the will of God to God's people, that he had a specific commission on him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And because of this commission by God, he was bound under God's will to do a specific set of things. And so his reasoning, when he opens up in verse 22, uh, and in verse 23, when he says, but now he has no, uh, no more room for work, uh, his reason that he's now able to come is because this constraint that God has put on him, he's fulfilled the constraint. And so now he's going to take his liberty to fulfill his own desires to reach out and go to the church in Rome. Uh, but Paul, in his whole ministry, sought to do the will of God. And so that's going to be kind of like a hinge point for us. And we're going to focus on that. And we're going to look at how Paul articulates how the will of God informs every decision he made in ministry, uh, specifically through um, this whole section, verses 22 through uh, 33. Um, Paul's whole ministry was marked by uh, a characteristic calling on God's will. And I'm just going to flip to Acts chapter 13. Uh, right after Paul was commissioned uh, to preach and teach the word of God, he, the first sermon he delivers right after they lay hands on him and commission him out, uh, he preaches about David, and in this sermon, he talks about how David was unique in salvation history because da David was specifically God's servant. He did exactly the will of God and what God wanted him to do. And so in verse uh, 22, uh, he says, And when he had removed him, being Saul, he says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So this is one of the hinge points in Paul's very first sermon that he ever preaches. Then he continues in verse 36 of that same chapter, in that very end of the sermon, and he goes back to David and he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. You see, David, even in his own life, in his kingdom, in his reign over Israel, we would have seen David as a powerful figure, but Paul saw him as no more than a tool that God used exactly in his timing. And when God had completed his will for David, David rested and he uh, passed on into the next life. And so this phrase is not only key to Paul's understanding of David, but also Paul's understanding of his own ministry and how we understand Paul. In fact, in uh, chapter one of Romans, uh, Chapter 1, verse 10, Paul gives us an explicit statement on this exact idea. Uh, and he is going to talk about how he also is bound by the will of God. He says in verse 10 of Romans 1, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he doesn't presume anything that's going to happen outside of the will of God. He says, by God's will, I would like to come to you, the church in Rome. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, uh, just under half of the letters open with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's his opening phrase in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy, that exact wording. That excludes the letters where he implies that phrasing later on, as he does here in Romans. The first line of those letters specifically say, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So his ministry was not only as a servant to Christ Jesus, but also under the constraint of the will of God. And we see here as he's bookending Romans, he's concluding that idea again by saying his ministry is bound up fully and finally in the will of God. 
And because Paul sees his ministry uh, under the will of God, informs everything about everything that he does in ministry. And in this section, we get to see his reasoning kind of come about. And so even up until now in Romans, he's not yet come to the church in Rome, even though it's been established for quite some time, because God has a specific calling on his life to the Gentiles. You see, we read last week about Paul's specific mission to preach the word where it had not yet been proclaimed. And so the church in Rome was thriving. We saw last week that they were upstanding, they were virtuous, they could teach, and they could disciple. So Paul saw that as building on someone else's foundation. So although he desired to meet the saints in Rome, because of God's specific commission on his life, he doesn't go to Rome, and instead he continues in harsh environments and harsh regions, although he longs to visit transiently the saints in Rome, so he can go back out onto the mission field. And so we're going to be looking at really three uh, different breaks in this text. Uh, we're going to be looking at the plan of Paul, uh, the payment that Paul collects, and the prayer that Paul has. So a little bit of alliteration for you tonight. Uh, plans, payment, and prayer. So the plan of Paul is going to be verse 22 to 24. Uh, that's when he's talking about his future plans to go to Spain after he visits Jerusalem. We're going to look at the payment that Paul was bringing to Jerusalem. That's called the collection to the saints uh, in Jerusalem. We're going to talk about what that was about, what it has implications for us for today. Um, we're going to break that down. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the prayer that Paul has for the church in Rome to join in him, to accompany him on his missionary journey, uh, even though he had not yet met any of these saints. So we're going to open up in verse 22. And in this first section, we're going to see Paul giving an explanation for his previous delay and his future desire to visit Rome. So he says in verse 22, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So this first thing, this is the reason. The reason relates back to Paul's mission. Remember, he just finished explaining what his mission was, and he says, this is the reason why I haven't been able to come. Although I've spoken highly of you, although I long to be with you, although I opened up this letter saying I would long to uh, fill my soul with you, this reason that I've just listed, being the apostles of the Gentiles, uh, is the reason I'm not able to come to you. And Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And remember, he's not trying to build on anyone else's foundation. So he doesn't want to come to the church in Rome because he still had work to get done. But then in verse 23, he says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed to come to you for many years, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He says, but now, because remember last week we talked about the fulfillment of Paul's ministry. Paul fulfilled his ministry in the regions listed from Jerusalem out to uh, Lycurium. And he... Uh, it's an amazing proclamation. We talked about that last week. The fulfillment of the mission of the gospel was stated by Paul when not everyone had been converted, when the society hadn't been changed, and when there was still a lot of work seemingly to be done. But Paul's unique mission had been accomplished, and the unique mission of the church had been accomplished to, ch to plant the seed of Christ in those regions in hostile territory to carry out and propagate that mission. Uh, not that there wasn't any more work to be done. In fact, we know that Paul also commissioned out elders to those local churches to feed and to shepherd the flock. But Paul's unique work had been done at that time. So he says, I long to come to you. I've been hindered so far, but now my work is complete. And so therefore, uh, I long to come to you now. And he's making plans now uh, to go to the church in Rome. And he's writing to them this letter saying he longs to come and pass through to them. And so he says that he has longed for many years to come to the church in Rome. Paul, you, interestingly, although he was working for the mission of God among the unique commission in his life, he still had desires that were different than the mission. But because he was so convinced of what, Paul, uh, what God's call in his life was, he didn't let his desires overtake his current task and his current role. You see, a lot of us, when we have desires to go work another job or to go accomplish another goal, it's very easy for us to be in one place and be in another and we're not really being efficient with the job that we're currently located in. And we're not being efficient with the calling that God has on us in that specific location because our mind and our hearts and our desires are in a different location. And it's a mark of maturity for us to set aside our desires for the task at hand that God has provided right in front of us and to delay the gratification that we long for. Because it is very, Paul did not please himself. He put aside his own desires because he had a current task that God had called him to, put him in that place, for a specific reason, for a time. And although his desire was to renew himself and be with the church in Rome, he didn't go ahead and just up and leave and go to Rome. In fact, he stayed 
for about six years after he found out about the church in Rome, on the foreign mission field, making journeys back and forth, traveling around, sailing, shipwrecking himself. Uh, he doesn't go straight to the church in Rome, although he desires to, he longs to, he prays for the church in Rome. And so don't let us have our desires bind our, bind our uh, mission up. Our mission shouldn't be bound explicitly in our desires. But he works tirelessly at the task at hand despite the fact that he longed to go to the church in Rome. And in verse 24, uh, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And so right now he's talking about uh, as he goes to Spain. You remember Paul had already accomplished his mission in the territories previously mentioned from Jerusalem out to the known world at that time. And so Spain would have represented the furthest uh, place he could have gone on the map where he hadn't yet visited. And Spain would have included Portugal and things like that at this point in time. And Paul made all kinds of plans, although we also know that Paul sought the guidance of the Holy Spirit all the time. And often it's confused that if we're going to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to trust God to fulfill ministry, that we shouldn't make plans, we shouldn't have desires, we shouldn't set forth ambitions and goals, because we're going to say, we're just going to leave it up to the Lord. We're going to let, I'm not going to make plans because I want God to do what he's going to do. And Paul has all kinds of plans. He's had a long time desire to go to the church in Rome. And he's already now talking in the next sentence about where he's going to go after he visits with the church in Rome. So he has plans. He has ambitions. He has goals that he wants to accomplish. But in that very same breath, we know that Paul sought the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He also, though, exercises the ability to freely choose when given two decisions that he sees as morally benign, he says, Lord, I'm going to seek you in this, but if you're not going to speak and bind me in one direction or another, I have the freedom to choose, and I'm going to choose what I want to do because God is with you as a Christian. You have liberty to choose things despite the fact that two things are morally benign and beneficial decisions. So Paul was following God's plan specifically for his life, right? We can affirm that. If you read throughout the book of Acts, we see that there's plenty of times where Paul goes to a certain location because the Spirit's leading him, or that he doesn't go to a certain location because the Spirit is hindering him from going. But in this unique situation, we get to see Paul's reasoning out that he's always longed to go to the church in Rome. He's been bound for a time, but now that binding has been released from him, and now he seeks to go to the church in Rome. But there's no inclination that the Spirit is specifically leading him to Rome. This is really just his own desire. And so as Christians, I think we can find freedom in the fact that Paul, an apostle, who would have had the Holy Spirit, most likely guiding him almost every step of the way in his journey, didn't see it necessary to wait explicitly on the Holy Spirit for every single decision that he made. And as Christians, it's very easy for us to say that I don't know if I should take this job or that job because I haven't heard back from the Holy Spirit just yet on that or I'm not going to uh, go live in this location or that location, or I don't know what to do with my college major, or whatever it might be, because I haven't heard from the Spirit. Mm -hmm. You have liberty in Christ to make a free choice out of the liberty that you have and trust that the Lord is with you in that. That's not on every case. We often do seek the Spirit, but if we don't hear from the Spirit, that doesn't mean that we have to wait and pause our whole lives uh, in order for that to happen. So you see, Paul here doesn't wait for the Spirit. Although he was an apostle, and if we would have expected anyone to be led consistently by the Spirit, it would have been Paul. And so we can use that as a pattern for our own decision-making as Christians as well. So he makes decisions when there's a fork in the road. He doesn't wait explicitly for the Spirit, uh, and that's okay. Uh, that's not heretical. That's not a wrong thing to do. That's not Paul acting selfishly. God has given you a brain, a desire, and a heart for you to go make decisions. In these verses, we also get a taste of the providence of God in Paul's life. Uh, you see, Paul, as we've seen early in Romans, and as I just mentioned in all those other letters, Paul saw himself as a doulos, as a slave to Christ Jesus. And so here, uh, Paul, as seeing himself as a slave, we can see that God is providentially working in Paul's life to, occur, to make all kinds of things happen. Because first, Paul was a rebel to Christ. Christ intercedes, stops him on the Damascus Road, and says, nope. You're going to do missions for me. In fact, you're going to be the best apostle to the Gentiles that anyone's ever heard of, even though right now you're trying to kill the Christian community. So that's going to happen to you, Paul. And Paul sees himself as a slave to Christ so that this happens immediately to Paul. And then as he goes in all of his missions journeys, we see all of these providential things that God is laying up uh, back to back to back. God is kind of like stacking the deck uh, in Paul's favor in ways that Paul can't even see. And so there's two ways that God works primarily to intercede in the world. 
One of them we would call providence, which is God working through ordinary means in ways that we can't really tell. They're not really like supernatural things, but he is just in charge of the order of the world. And so he's going to uphold and direct and uh, uh, show everyone where to go and how to do things. And he's holding up the world by the might of his hand. Another way that God will intervene uh, in the world is through miracles. This is when God will suspend reality for a moment to accomplish something he wants to accomplish, and then he'll let reality carry on after that. So this is like when manna falls from heaven, uh, when people strike rocks and uh, water gushes out of them, uh, when lame people start walking, uh, when dead people rise to life. uh, In the physical sense, the dead body actually comes back to life. Those are miracles. That's when reality is suspended for a moment. Things that don't make sense are happening. And it's because uh, God is working specifically to uh, interact with the world. But providence is more common. Providence is seen in the book of Esther, in the book of Ruth, in the Old Testament. Uh, We see it in the life of David. We see it in the life of Moses. That things are just kind of stacked. And it's a bunch of weird coincidences happening back to back to back to back to back that lead you down the path of God's providence into him helping you to make a decision or him helping you to have an opportunity to share the gospel or him helping you to have a job, whatever that might be. And so Paul uh, right now is going to lean on God's providence to make this decision. He's going to say that I've longed to go to the church in Rome. Now my mission's fulfilled. There's a lot of doors opening up. I'm going to come back to Jerusalem. Then I'll be on my way to Rome. He's saying I'm leaning fully into God's providence that I've wanted to do this thing. Now it's become available to me in a, in a weird circumstance. And so now I'm just going to go and carry that out. And what's interesting is Paul says that at this point in time, he's been hindered. And I want you to know that it's possible for him to be hindered by God to go places. And it's possible for you to be hindered by God to go and do certain things, even if those are beneficial things that you're seeking to do. You see, Paul was prevented on his, uh, by going to Rome by his mission uniquely, but he was specifically hindered by God's spirit, pressing in on him and telling him that he had a mission to go carry out. And so the, although he wanted to visit Rome, which is a good thing, he was hindered from doing it by God. And so you and I can also be hindered from doing things that we might see as good, we might see as beneficial. By the Spirit of God, we might be hindered in order to uh, do something that we don't even know is going to happen. In God's providence, he's hindering us for some later thing down the road, that we are being used by God in this way. And so Paul has a unique constraint on his life, and that constraint, hear me, it allows him to be impactful in a specific ministry. If you don't have constraints on your ministry, on your mission in life, you will not accomplish very much for the kingdom. If we all constrained ourselves for what God had for us uniquely and specifically, and we said no to everything else, we would be far more effective in the mission that God has for us. He only wanted to plant churches among the Gentiles, and plant churches among the Gentiles, he did. Paul did that at the expense of a whole lot of other things, being wealthy, having close relatives and family that he could be around all the time, having a place to sleep. He wanted to plant churches so badly that he actually didn't go back to Jerusalem except for two different times when he was restocking for another missionary journey out. And in fact, he wanted to go plant churches among the Gentiles so bad that although he loves the church in Rome, he's going to only consider them as a transient location on his next locate, on his next stop. And so because Paul was constrained in his mission, he had one unique goal. He was clear on that goal, and he was running after it as hard as he could. If you and I were constrained in that same way, we knew what our mission was. We knew what God had in store for us. We knew what God was calling us to do. And we were just to run at that thing at the expense of other things that might be good, might be beneficial, might be worthy. But we just hold, we say no to those things because we know what our mission uniquely and specifically is. Paul forgoes other things, good things, And he entrusts the building up of those things to the Lord. You see, Paul planted churches, but he didn't stay in those churches and micromanage everything. He plants them and he leaves. And he trains up faithful men and he leaves. And he writes letters to faithful men to build up those churches, but he's not there. And he's entrusting the building up of his church to God, whose church it ultimately is. Although he planted the church and he had close relations with the church, he's not going to stay because it's not his mission to stay. And you and I can often, in good, good ways, with good intentions, stay and do something that looks beneficial, but it's not our mission, it's not our calling, it's not what we've been tasked to do. And so we have to seek the will of God, we have to long to find out what it is, what is his calling for us, and then we have to run after that. As soon as it's made clear to us, we have to run at it. You can't know the calling of God and then start running from it. Jonah did that, it doesn't work out well. Um, 
On the missionary journeys Paul goes to also, it's, it's interesting to note, uh, he's even constrained in the locations that he travels to. If you look at his missionary journeys, he like the first one, he's kind of on a short loop. He goes to a few different locations and comes back. The next one, he goes to all those same locations and then like two others, then comes back. And then on the third missionary journey, he repeat hits all those same locations again, and he goes to like one more and then comes back. So his mission is also constrained because he's not only seeking to just plant and go, but also to make sure that those churches are healthy and follow up. So he's continuing to be constrained, not only in his mission, but also in what places he's visiting as he goes out. And so he was very, very sold on this mission. And the question uh, that I was thinking about is, are we bound by our mission that we have? Uh, Are we bound uh, by a sense of calling, by a sense of desire, by a passion that we have for a specific community, uh, by a job or opportunity that we have? Are we bound by God to say yes to that thing? Or are we bound by God, by something else, to say no to other things, although they might be good? To say yes to God and to his mission is to say no to other good things, other beneficial things. You see, for centuries in the Christian church, missionaries would say no to plenty of good things, like families, like lives, like a full happy place in a safe location where you could have running water and food, and they say no to those things for the sake of saying yes to the mission that God had called them to. And they would say no to security and no to safety, and they would go to places where they might be killed immediately, or they might last a month there, or sometimes they might, by the grace of God, bear fruit in that location, and then it was on to the next location. And so by saying yes to God, you are saying no to other things, even if they are good things. Every single human is bound by time on this earth. We're bound by it. We might have differences in how much money we have access to, how many jobs we have access to, uh, how smart we are, how physically uh, able we are, but we are all bound by time. We all have the same number of hours in a day. Uh, Some of us, by the grace of God, get more time. Some of us get less. But by and large, we are all bound by time, and that time is what we're going to say yes or no to with certain things. And so some of us uh, have a certain amount of hours in a day, and we choose to spend it on all kinds of things kind of aimlessly. We don't have a mission that we're running at, and so we don't know how to spend our time. So we just kind of kill it. You know, we'll sit around for a few hours and blow some time, and we're just kind of waiting for the next thing to happen to us, and then we kind of go through life this way. And you're not going to accomplish much if you go through life that way. You're not going to accomplish much, certainly for the kingdom, if you go through life that way. And we have to live our life with intent. And even though some of us are bound by time, you can cheat uh, a little bit on both sides if you sacrifice rest, like I like to do. Uh, But that's only a brief time, and God is very specific and clear that I am the creature and he is the creator. Uh, And if you're like me and you like to try to sleep as little as possible, uh, you know that that is not a long-term strategy for success. And so I'm also bound by time, and I'm bound by that reality, right? So the hours that I do have that I'm awake and the hours that my brain is functioning and I'm not tied up at work or something else, uh, what am I doing to run at the mission of God? What are you doing? Uh, Is it your work that allows you to run at the mission of God? Is work really just how you put food on the table and you're just trying to run at something else for the mission of God? Uh, How do you spend your time? That's a big question. And Paul spent his time very specifically and really at the expense of a whole lot of other things. You see, when you're on a missionary journey, you don't get to hang out with your friends that you have discipleship with. When you're on a missionary journey, you don't get to hang out with people and catch up with old friends all the time because you're out on the fringes of society, on the fringes of the mission, usually getting stoned in synagogues and then having to wipe yourself off and go back to that same city and try again. So that's what Paul's life was like, and that's how he spent most of his free time. And in fact, at some points, he has to go do a tent-making job, so he works tents by day, and then he preaches in the synagogue on weekends, and he's probably studying scripture in between to make sure he's ready for those synagogue preachings on Sunday. And uh, usually he'll get stoned by Sunday night, and he'll come back out uh, ready to rally for Monday for a tent-making job, and then rinse, rinse and repeat. So that's how he spends his time, right? And he accomplishes a whole lot for the kingdom of God. And ultimately, how we use our time for God is to say yes to some things for God at the exclusion of everything else that we could say yes to. Although those things are good, although family is good, we might be called to say no to family for a time if we're called to missions. We might be called to say no to missions and our desire to do those things for a time to build up the local church. We might be called to say no to a current mission that we want to do, to say yes to training ourselves up for that mission one day. Whatever it looks like, you have to run fully and finally at the thing that you have in front of you right now. You have to run hard at that thing 
so that you can ultimately be exactly who God is calling you to be. And we plan and we plan and we work and we work and we uh, strain against all uh, physical bounds that we have and against time itself. And we still submit to the providence of God in all things. Because although we might work and we might labor, we know that through the providence of God is how things are accomplished. And we might work as hard as we want, but unless God was providentially over Paul in many of the cities that he visited, Paul wouldn't have survived. And unless God is providentially over your and my lives and our plans, they will fail. And we have to be okay with planning and still submitting to the providence of God. You see, God is plenty okay with changing our plans. That doesn't mean we don't have them. That just means we're okay with them changing. Right? That doesn't mean you don't plan. You plan and you work and you strive. But you're okay if God's going to go ahead and change those things. And so Paul models that for us very well here in the first few verses. And so uh, we're going to move on to the payment that Paul's collecting. This is a really interesting uh, piece in this text. So I want to spend some time talking about what it was, what it was for, and how that kind of lands for us today. Um, part of the plan that Paul has is this collection of money that he's going to then collect through all the churches that he's ministered to, and he's going to bring it back to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, so I'm going to kick off in verse 25. He says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem and bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And when, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You see, Paul uh, wants to go to Rome, but at the current moment, he has a task that he has to do. In fact, he's overseeing the collection of an offering that is being brought to the church in Jerusalem. So although he wants to go to Rome, he wants to go to Spain, he's going to go a thousand miles in the other direction because he has a certain task that he's got to accomplish before he can go and do that thing. And if that doesn't describe uh, where someone is at today, that describes where I'm at a lot of times in life. I feel like I want to go do something for God, but I have to get this immediate task done that doesn't feel related so that I can be free to go and do the thing that I need to do and that I feel desire to do. And so the reason that he's collecting up this offering to Jerusalem, uh, he goes to all the churches, and in all the churches he goes, he writes and he pleads with them to collect and to give money to the saints in Jerusalem. And the reason he's doing that is because there's a famine at the moment in Jerusalem. And you can read about this uh, in Acts 11, 27, and 30. They predict this famine is going to happen. And so when they commission Paul out, uh, the Jerusalem elders and the apostles, they commission Paul out and they say, hey, while you're going, don't forget the poor. And so as he goes on all of his missionary journeys, he's not only preaching the gospel, but when the church is resurrected, he's collecting money from the wealthy Gentiles in order to come back to Jerusalem and provide for the poor Christians in that region. And the reason that the Christians are poor is, one, because there's a famine. Two, uh, because these are Jewish Christians primarily in Jerusalem, which means if they would have said yes to Christ, they would have had to say no to family, uh, all kinds of job security that they might have had because the Jewish people were killing Christians at this time, or they were kicking them out from being able to do trade in the marketplace. They were preventing them from essentially being able to provide some of them were being thrown in jail. So if the father was thrown in jail, the rest of the family didn't have access to food or other things, material provisions. And so because the saints in Jerusalem are struggling, Paul is going to take a collection from all the other saints who might be doing okay because the Gentiles don't care that much. And they're just going to give money so that the people who need it can have it provided to them. And Paul, in fact, considers this collection so important that he's going to travel with it to make sure that it lands in Jerusalem and that it is received appropriately. You see, the need that the church has in Jerusalem is only one of the reasons why he's going with it. There's a big need because of the famine. But also, as we've been learning about in the last few chapters of Romans, there's a big Jewish and Gentile divide in the church. And so what Paul is convinced of, and strategically so, he's been planning this collection, because he's going to bring this and present it to the Jewish Christians, and he's going to say, see, this is proof that God's salvation actually landed with the Gentiles because they don't care about money anymore. They're just going to give it to you because you need it. And what better way for us to prove that we're okay with God being Lord of our lives than parting with other things that vie for that lordship position. And so he sees this as evidence that the Gentile people are converted to salvation. Not that it's a one-to-one -one relationship that if you give money, you will be saved. That's not what he's teaching. He's just saying that it's evidence of the fact that the Gentile people 
are willing to part with their money. They're not really attached to it anymore. And so this is uh, one thing. And so he hopes that the Jews and the Gentiles will be reconciled between this. And then the third reason that uh, this is a really important offering uh, is because he argues in this passage, and we'll take a look at this, is that the Gentiles owe the Jews something. That they're going to contribute in a monetary amount because they actually owe something to the Jewish people. And we'll, well, I'll break that more down when we get to that section. Um, so the first reason Paul seeks to do this offering is to ensure uh, that it's well received so that the Jews and the Gentiles get along together. Uh, the Jews hate the Gentiles, um, but the, the Gentiles are going to prove evidence of the fact that they want to give back to the church in Jerusalem uh, by taking up an offering. He says the saints in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so out of their pleasure, out of the joy of salvation that they uptake, this is not a forcing them to give up an offering. He just says, if it pleases you, if you have funds available, go ahead and donate to the church in Jerusalem because they're struggling right now. And so the churches in Achaia and Macedonia, they're like, whatever, we'll go ahead and give money. We don't need it that bad. They can have it if they need it. And so this is really interesting because actually in another letter, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually applauds the church in Macedonia for giving out of their poverty to this fund. And so the church in Macedonia, although could, we could have been perceiving it as rich and well-off, they contribute much, not out of their wealth, but out of their poverty, because they considered it so important that the church in Jerusalem was well provided for. And I think it's a mark of good giving. Uh, if you remember uh, Jesus and the, the lady who's in the synagogue and she donates uh, two coins, two small copper coins uh, for her tithe, and the Pharisee gives out of his abundance, and Jesus says, if you look at the contrast between these two, the one who gave out of her poverty was the one who is coming back justified because she gave what little she had. In fact, a much larger sum proportionately to what she had than this rich person, right? So although financially one's giving a lot and one's giving a little, he's really looking at the heart level. And so in Achaia, this is true as well and in Macedonia. And so uh, Paul is very concerned about the unity of the church, and so he's concerned that this offering lands so that the Jewish and the Gentile people would finally be reconciled together. And this would be like a really good way for them to come together, is for the Jewish people to accept the offering of the Gentile Christians and say that, thank you for your contribution. We actually really needed this right now. And so it's one way for the body to love one another. And so secondly, uh, there's a great need in Jerusalem. Uh, we already talked about this, but in Acts 6, you get a picture of how much the church in Jerusalem was struggling. It gets founded in Acts chapter 2, uh, and then in Acts chapter 4, they're selling all kinds of land and property so that the mutual saints can be provided for. And then in Acts chapter 6, we see that the widows are struggling of the Jewish Gentiles, or of the Gentile Christians, and so they have to appoint a specific group of people, the seven, who are going to see that the, uh, the widows are provided for and that everyone is being fed and well taken care of. So this was not a unique problem to the church in Jerusalem, and there's all kinds of reasons why they could have been struggling financially, but the primary reason was that there was a famine in the land. And so then the last thing is this uh, piece of the Gentiles owing the Jewish people uh, something. So this is a monetary contribution to the Jewish people for something that the Gentiles owe them. And so uh, I'm going to teach you uh, something that's well taught in Scripture. Paul argues it as well. Um, but this is the idea that if, uh, if you sow something spiritual among a group of people, as the Jewish uh, Christians did to the Gentile Christians, that it is fitting and right and okay for you to reap some monetary reward from that. And so the idea that he talks about um, is that essentially Jesus was a Jewish person uh, who essentially dies and makes salvation available to the whole world. And then Paul is a Jewish person who goes and he's going to proclaim salvation to the entire uh, Gentile nation. And the Jerusalem is the location where the whole church comes from, that there's missions and all kinds of people who are uh, going out and planting churches. And so that there's all kinds of places uh, in which the Jewish or the Gentile people owe the church in Jerusalem, and specifically the Jewish Christians, in a financial way that they can contribute. So they owe so much to them in a spiritual sense that these people have brought them from death to life. And because of this, this spiritual thing that they have sown, they can reap a financial benefit. This is not financially getting rich. The Jewish Christians are struggling. And so this is betting their, having their needs met. This is not the Jewish Christians trying to get rich off of the backs of the Gentiles who they're preaching to. That's not what this teaches. This is just talking about having their needs met because from Jerusalem is where the gospel spread out to the rest of the world. 
And so uh, the Gentile church owes it uh, because the life of the Jewish church, uh, the life of Jewish preachers, and the life of the Jewish writings is what led them to salvation. And so because of this, they owe it to the Jewish people. So the Gentiles owe the Jews in some monetary sense, and so they seek to contribute in some monetary sense. And this is not a compulsory giving. This is a giving that they do out of the abundance of the joy that they set before them. Okay? So then uh, we're going to continue uh, in verse 28. And he says, uh, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You see, uh, Paul is already talking again about going through them to Spain. Uh, but he says that when he comes to them, he's going to come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And this is once again Paul talking about how he thinks he's within the will of God to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and then to Spain. And so he says that I think God's going to bless me and allow me to be filled by you on my way to Spain. So this is just another way of Paul saying, I think I'm still in line with the Spirit of God and what is happening and how I'm carrying out my actions. And so uh, there's a few things uh, by way of application that we can bring out of this section. Uh, the first is the Gentile status as members of God is tied up in salvation history. So you and I uh, are members of the kingdom of God primarily because of Jewish salvation history. You see, the Jews were the people of God. That Abraham was the first one to whom the promise was delivered, that there would one day be deliverance, that his children would be like the offspring of the stars. And so uh, Abraham is a Jewish person. And Abraham is the one to whom God first makes the covenant promise, to whom God binds himself by covenant by God. And so God says, I'm binding myself to you by covenant. And so Abraham is the first person that that happens to. And then later, David, another Jewish king, one of the uh, second kings of Israel, he is the throne on which Jesus will later come and sit. And David is a Jewish person. And so David paves the way in salvation history for us Gentiles to later come in and receive the reward for what they're going through, what they were promised. And so remember, God owed it to the Jewish people to make good on his promise to them in the Old Testament. And we reap the benefits of that, uh, making good on that promise. And so not only Abraham and David were Jewish, but also Jesus, uh, our Savior, was a Jewish man. And he accomplishes redemption. You see, Jesus comes and lives according to the Jewish law perfectly. At a time when the Gentiles were oppressing Jewish people, he could have stirred up a revolt, he could have done all kinds of things, but he submits himself to the authorities, ultimately submitting himself to Gentile authorities to be killed on a cross. And he stands there in your and my place, fully taking on the wrath of God. And he does this, and he's a Jew. Remember, he's a Jewish savior in the line of David. And so we owe it to the Jewish people in some sense uh, in order to, uh, and so the Gentile church owed it to the Jewish church. And remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He made sure that the gospel got out to the people who weren't necessarily Jewish. He was the one responsible for arguing to bring them in unity together. And so if it wasn't for Paul, we wouldn't be standing today. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be standing here today worshiping God. And if it wasn't for David and the promise that was made to him, and if it wasn't for Abraham and the promise that was made to him, and you can go down the line of Jewish salvation history, and we come in on the back end of that story. And so we're taking part in a long tradition, and we are the wild shoot that comes and gets grafted into the olive tree. And so we should rejoice in the fact that the olive tree is providing for us, and we should seek to, in as many ways as possible, thank them. And so that's one thing, is that we can be thankful for Jewish salvation history. The second thing is that the church is organized so that those who have need is balanced by those who have excess. So at a time when uh, the church was in need in Jerusalem, the church and the rest of the world was doing well enough to give money financially. And remember, this is not a get-rich-quick thing. This is not uh, the church in Jerusalem trying to do super well so that the Gentile church is suffering. Uh, they're giving among the excess and uh, the need. And so they're just kind of redistributing resources in order that everyone's needs are met. And they're doing this out of the abundance of joy. And so God has done this in a few different times and locations in the church. Uh, he's done it in terms of spiritual maturity where he'll plant people who know the word well and who can teach it in a church where maybe not everyone has that ability. And so those who have excess knowledge and understanding and wisdom can teach those who don't and bring them up in maturity. And so this is one way in which God is going to plant and distribute the church evenly, that those who have excess can give to those who have need. 
Another way is with talents and gifts, uh, those who are musically gifted, who are gifted in the spirit to serve and to lead and to uh, teach and to preach. And all of these different talents that you see of the Holy Spirit, those are distributed evenly throughout the body. And in any local congregation, you're going to find people who are gifted in all kinds of different ways. And that's because some of them have excess in certain gifts and some of them have need in certain areas. And so we balance out one another by having a desire for doctrine and desire for missions and desire for people. And we balance each other out because some of us are stronger in other areas and some of us are really weak in certain areas. And so we need the body to balance ourselves out. And so this is one way in which an uneven distribution is leveled out by God through the body. And finances is one of those things as well. That some of us are financially well off so that we can meet the needs of poor Christians in our local community. And this is really interesting that Paul is talking specifically about poor Christians. We must first make sure that the poor in our own community is met, our own church community, before we can seek to provide needs for the poor of the world. You wouldn't let your children starve at home so that you could feed your neighbor's children. So you need to make sure your own are taken care of, those within the family of faith first, the poor in the family of faith, before you seek to do outreach. Not that you can't do both and you can't do it in right proportions, but you should make sure that your own family is taken care of first before you go out and see if everyone else is well-fed. And so we, like Paul, also need to set our ambitions aside for a necessary task. Remember, he's going a thousand miles in the other direction to accomplish a task so that he can once again go and do the mission he feels called to do. Um, This is a test of our own maturity. If we can set aside our own ambitions and desires for a task that's right in front of us that we know God needs us to get done, not that God needs us to get anything done, but God has called us to get that thing done. And can we set aside our ambitions and our desires for the task at hand so that we can delay our reward and fully uh, partake in God's mission? And then also, uh, this last piece uh, is the idea of paying uh, spiritually or paying materially things that are owed spiritually. Uh, so the idea that uh, gets kind of treaded out in the New Testament and a few other letters, uh, you can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul will use this same argument to say why you should uh, pay pastors in the local church. So there are pastors that you have on full-time staff. We have uh, Forrest and Tyler on full-time staff. And so those guys uh, feed us spiritually. And so we want them to spend all of their time on this world studying scripture, teaching us rightly, and making sure we're well-fed spiritually. So out of the abundance of what we have, we pay them to do nothing else but to study the scripture and to learn it and to decide it rightly and then to come on Sunday and teach it, right? And so because we value that so highly, we pay them to occupy nothing else with their time. And so that is one reason in which you will pay a local pastor, right? And so the the verse that often gets used is, uh, don't muzzle an ox while they tread the grain. That the pastor is working and sowing spiritually in a local community, and so don't muzzle them. Let them eat among the grain that they're treading. And so this is an Old Testament law that gets brought into a New Testament context. So that's kind of how that gets uh, splayed out in the New Testament. And then the last thing we're going to look at is those last three verses, which is the prayer of Paul. And this is by far my favorite part of this passage. So he's going to say in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And we must never, never, never forget that although we labor as hard as we can materially, nothing happens apart from prayer. And Paul knows this. In his full missionary time, he's been talking about praying and praying without ceasing. He writes in all kinds of letters that prayer is super important. And here he's going to say to them, strive together with me so that they can intercede on his behalf in prayer. And he has three specific prayers for them. The one is for them to be, for him to be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. The second is that the, uh, the offering will be well accepted by the Jewish Christians. And then the third is that he will be able to rejoice and enjoy time with them in Rome. Um, the one thing that's true is that there's no plan that's certain without the movement of the Holy Spirit. So you can plan, you can strive, you can work for something, uh, but unless you pray and God is providential over that thing, it's not going to happen. And so we, uh, although we labor materially, uh, we know that unless God builds something, 
it's not going to happen, right? So that's the first thing. Uh, if you look at the phrase delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, uh, first off, it's interesting to note, Paul was one of these. Uh, the unbelievers in Judea specifically describe Jewish people who are antagonistic to the gospel. And so Paul is now asking to be delivered from a group in which he belonged. In fact, he was the leader of that group for the most part. He was a religious terrorist who was killing Christians, and he was making sure that the gospel wasn't spreading until God grabs him from that situation. And so for Paul, this was a very real threat because these are the people he knows their tactics, he knows their strategies, he knows what's coming if he goes back to that location. So it's not like he's praying generically for safety. You know, sometimes when we drive from like one location to another, we'll pray that God would keep us safe in like a generic sense. This is a very real threat, and Paul knows he's about to bump into it. But he's still going to go. He's just going to pray for them to, for himself to be delivered from them. And so uh, in Acts chapter 21, if you'll flip to, with me to Acts chapter 21, uh, we're going to be in Acts kind of like following the history of these answered prayers real quick. So in Acts chapter 21, we're going to see uh, what Paul's talking about when he says being delivered from the unbelievers. So if you look at Acts chapter 21, and we're going to go to verse 10. So he's, uh, he's hanging out with a bunch of people, and uh, while they're there, so he says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this and the people, were the, and the people that were with us, they urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And let, we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. So this is what Paul is asking for deliverance from. There's been a prophecy that's been named. It's happening. It's been predicted to happen. He says, I'm going to go anyway. Join with me in prayer. And at the time that this prophecy is happening would have been roughly the time that the Roman Christians would have been receiving the letter that Paul had. So in God's providence, Paul writes this down to be delivered from unbelievers. And it's going to happen kind of synchronously, that they're going to be praying for him while he has to be delivered from these unbelievers. And so Paul goes forth knowing that he's going to face persecution. And if there's anything true for us today, is that if you're a Christian in this world, you will face persecution. And in America, that's becoming more and more prevalent of a reality that you could face job insecurity for being a Christian. Uh, you could be uh, considered uh, condemned and despised by the world for holding to Christian beliefs and values. So you need to be careful of the fact that you are going to face persecution for a fact. You see, because there's a spiritual war going on against darkness and against light. And if you are on the team of light, you can bet that the team of darkness is going to try to pick you off. It's not that complicated, right? If you're fighting actively against them, they are going to fight actively against you. There's no neutral ground in this war. So Paul asked them to pray on his behalf for his safety. And then the other thing he asked is for the collection, that it will be well received. And then he's going to conclude with this phrase, so that by God's will... I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And that's that last phrase is that he wants to then go and enjoy time with the saints in Rome. And so the question is, does God answer Paul's prayers? And if we look at Acts, we can figure out that God, in fact, does answer every single prayer that Paul lists here. So the first thing I want you to know is that uh, when Paul prays, he's going to submit himself fully to the will of God. That phrase, by the will of God, is Paul submitting to God's will. He wants things to happen, but in his prayer, he says, by God's will. In Proverbs 27, verse 1, we know that uh, the Lord says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow may bring. And similarly, in James 4, he says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so don't say I will or I won't, but say only by the will of the Lord will I do these things. And so Paul is going to model this for us. And so we're going to take a look at Acts. We're going to still be in Acts chapter 21, so I hope you haven't lost your place there. Uh, I already did, so I'm going to flip back. So Acts chapter 21, and we're going to go down to verse 17. And we're going to see that first the collection that Paul brings is well received. Uh, he says, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. And after greeting them, he, re he related one by one the things that, had, that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So this is Paul. He's got the offering. He's telling everyone what's happened in his ministry. And when they heard it, 
they glorified God. So the Jewish Christians are now glorifying God for what God has done among the Gentile Christians. And so Paul's offering is received exactly as he wants it to be received. They're rejoicing in the fact that the Gentile Christians are coming to faith, and they now have unity together in that. So prayer number one, check. God has answered that prayer. Secondly, for safety, if you flip over to Acts chapter 23, uh, and we're going to be in verse 12 of Acts 23. Uh, In my Bible, it says uh, a plot to kill Paul is that section right there. Uh, You get to see a bunch of Jewish people, Jewish, uh, they're not Christians, they're just Jews, and they are going to make a plot. They're actually going to bind themselves together. They're saying no one's going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. This is how badly they wanted to kill him. And so Paul is going to escape from their uh, plot by imprisoning himself among Roman people. So he's going to fulfill the prophecy that was made by being bound by the hands of the Gentiles, And in this prophecy, he's going to be delivered from the Jewish people. And so if you skip down to verse 23, um, Paul finds out about the plot, and then the Roman governor, uh, or a centurion of the Roman army is going to say, then he called two of the centurions and he said to them, get ready with 200 soldiers soldiers, and with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. And so Paul is going to be delivered from Jewish people through God's providence by protection of the Roman army. The Gentile occupying force, which was antagonistic to God, is going to serve God perfectly by protecting Paul in Paul's imprisonment and delivering him from the Jewish people. So prayer number two answered, in God's providence in a kind of crazy way, he's going to be protected by 200 Romans. Uh, Roman soldiers, 70 horsemen, and then 200 spearmen. So he has a small army that he's going to carry around with him to keep him safe from the Jewish people. And he goes, then he's going to go and head to Rome. And you can read about in Acts 28. In Acts 28, Paul is delivered from Malta. Uh, So Paul is headed to Rome. He's sailing there. Satan shipwrecks Paul on the way to this island, or on the way to Rome. Uh, Paul is on an island. He survives a poisonous snake bite, so there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. And then Uh, In verse 11, you read, And after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. And putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regum. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pultai. And there we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. If you want to talk about the providence of God and all the crazy things that happened just in that passage alone, that happens for Paul to go from one location to another to finally get to Rome. And when he's in Rome, in his imprisonment, he preaches the gospel to Roman people, to Roman Jews. And that's actually how the book of Acts ends. And so you get to see that, that prayer answered as well, that Paul is going to renew himself in rest among the Roman people. And as far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. But all of the prayers God, Paul specifically asked for them to pray for on his behalf are answered by God. And so how does prayer work? That's a good theological question, right? We know that God is sovereign. We know that God knows everything. So why do we pray? Uh, God is sovereign, uh, and that is why you should pray. Uh, If you pray to a God who's not sovereign, what are you doing? Because if God is not sovereign, he's not able to accomplish the things that you're asking him to do through prayer. And so because God is sovereign, we ask him through prayer to accomplish things on our behalf. So because God is sovereign, we should most definitely pray. God's sovereignty is not antithetical to prayer. And the second thing we know is true is that prayer actually matters. That our prayers effectually change things for the better. That in the Bible, we get the language that God responds to our prayers. And I don't know how to make sense of those two things in my head, that God is sovereign and he responds to our prayers. All I know is the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that prayer effectually changes things. And if we don't pray, things aren't going to happen the way they should. So both of those things are true. And that's kind of crazy. uh, And I don't know a theological uh, idea that's going to, I'm not going to pack that together tonight. Uh, But what I do know is that God is sovereign and that we should still pray. And we pray and it actually changes things. And so that's how prayer works according to the Bible. Um, So we must pray and we should pray because we pray to an all-powerful, sovereign, and mighty king. And he's good and benevolent and just. And so we pray and we ask him for things. And because he's powerful, we pray, and we know that we are asking and talking to a mighty creator of all who rules over everything. And so that's why we pray. 
And we also know that we should pray communally. Uh, that's a necessity, according to Paul. He asked them to intercede on his behalf. Uh, if you ever join us before church, uh, when we gather here at 6, uh, at 5 o'clock, we're meeting uh, for a time of prayer. And we do that because we want to join together as a body to pray communally with one another. And often we will also throughout the week pray on one another's behalf, interceding on behalf of one another for things present in each of our lives. And the reason we do that is because we, we join with one another to intercede in prayer. And then when we fast together, we fast to pray on behalf of one another and for the whole body for one specific thing. And so as a church, we are trying to practice this discipline regularly, that this is not a theological idea for us. This is a regular lived out truth mm-hmm. that we embrace every single week. So prayer is a must. And if God doesn't move through prayer, our labor is absolutely wasted. All that time that we spend wisely at the beginning, if we don't pray for those things to happen, doesn't matter, right? The church could have had all the resources financially donated to it through Paul's collection. And if God didn't move mightily through prayer, the Jews wouldn't have accepted it and nothing would have been accomplished. But if no one donated and God did move mightily through prayer, the church would have still been unified. And so we need prayer more than we need financial things, more than we need anything else. And so the question that I had in reflection here is, uh, do you pray like it actually makes a difference? Do you actually pray expectantly? The question that uh, my brother will ask me, he uh, heard a seminary professor say this. He says, um, if God answered all the prayers that you prayed just in the last week, would anything be different about your life right now? It's a pretty good question to ask. If God answered every single thing you prayed just this last week, what would be different? Would anything be different? Are your prayers big enough that if God answers them, something is going to radically shift either in the world or in your life or in your community, in your family? Are your prayers big enough for that? And the second thing is, uh, do you pray like you're speaking to an all-powerful being? Uh, Do you petition God for big things or for small things? Do you petition God to answer things that you could also probably do on your own? Or do you petition God for things that there's no way you could accomplish unless he moves in that area or in that region? It's important how we address God and what we ask him for. Not that he doesn't care about the small things because he loves us and he cares for us. But we should also throw big things his way because he's very capable of handling all kinds of things. And then so uh, there's this idea of by God's will, and I don't want to leave us not having unpacked that idea. Um, And I want to give you three scenarios in which by God's will is a very important prayer. Uh, So the first one um, is out of the book of Daniel. I can give you the references for these if you want them. So Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. uh, We get this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they don't want to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar and his statue of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes them in front of him and he says, unless you bow the knee to this statue and you deny your God, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And they say, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, We're not going to bow the knee to your statue. You can throw us in the fiery furnace. Our God is capable of delivering us from this furnace. And we know that he can. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow the knee. And God, and Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. And if you know how that story ends, that God actually sends an angel of protection with them and not even a hair on their head is singed and they walk out of that furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar then confesses their God as Lord over all his nation. And so they say that, Lord, by your will, you could deliver us. But even if you don't, it's okay. We submit ourselves to your authority. And God moves mightily in that space through his will to do exactly what he wants to do. And so they're delivered. And then there's another example that you can find in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 14. And these are two, uh, it's the Israelite army, and it's fit, they're facing off against the surrounding nations. And there's two generals, and they're divided because they're fighting a battle on two different fronts. And so they're, they're figuring out how they're going to split their forces. They're fighting two much larger armies. And so the generals come together, and it's, uh, it's David's general, and he uh, divides his army in half, and he says, I'm going to take this half, and he gives command of the other half of the army to his brother. And uh, they talk, and they converse, and they say, uh, pray to the Lord that we will be delivered, and let God do what seems fitting to him. And they commission each other out to go fight. And once they commission each other out to go fight, it's not very long before both armies are fleeing tail tucked between their legs away from Israel. And so they, God is delivering them from that situation as well. But they don't say that God should or has to or must do this thing. They say, God, we're going to do this thing. Do what, you see, what seems fitting to you, and we're going to command, uh, uh, we're going to go out uh, in the commission that we feel is best. And so those are two actions of deliverance from prayer, uh, where the people who prayed on God's behalf were delivered from the situation they prayed for. 
And then I'm going to give you a third in which the person was not delivered from what they prayed God, for God. In Matthew 26, 39, you find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is going to in- invest a lot of time that night not sleeping because he knows what's coming before him. And Jesus, in Matthew 26, 39, he's going to go and he's going to re- withdraw away from his disciples and he's going to say, Lord, if by your will, let this pass, let this cup pass from, from me. Let me not have to go and bear the burden of the sins of the world right now. But not my will, but your will be done. And as you know how Matthew ends and how Mark and how Luke and how John end, is that Jesus doesn't get that prayer answered. Well, in fact, he does get that prayer answered. He's just not delivered from the thing he was praying for. Because he says, by your will, we know that according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was delivered up to be crucified through the Jewish people over to the Gentiles and then from the Gentiles onto the cross and then he was laid into a grave and then three days later the Roman centurions flee and the stone is rolled away and Jesus isn't in the grave. And that was all according to the will of God. By God's will that prayer wasn't answered so that his purpose for salvation history could be accomplished. So that people like you and me thousands of years later can rejoice in the truth of that moment. And it is by God's will that that prayer wasn't answered. But for us, that prayer was answered. And then the last thing Paul says here, he says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And God is the God who provides peace, not only between us uh, in community with one another, which is what Paul has been talking about for the last few chapters, that we would have unity together, that we would have peace. But also God is the one who provides peace between us and him. That we don't have a right relationship with God, but he, like we just talked about, delivers Jesus to be that peacemaker on our behalf. That we weren't in, in an okay spot with God, but because of Jesus' work, we are in an okay spot with God. Jesus is the reason that we can have peace with God, that that prayer of Paul is true, 